BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I'm Matthew Sweet, and I'm here with an emotional message. It's about the Arts and Ideas podcast and the state you'll get into if you download the discussions and short talks from this year's Free Thinking Festival. We have all the ideas, and now we have all the feels. How angry should our politics be? Really angry or not quite so angry? Do our pets love us, or are they just playing us for processed meat? Why do we love weeping at the movies? Should doctors and nurses cry? The BBC Arts and Ideas podcast. You push our buttons, and we'll push yours. As a young composer, Johannes Brahms was always conscious of working under the shadow of Beethoven not just when he was writing his symphonies, but in earlier works like the first cello sonata in E minor. And when you start exploring it, you can feel Beethoven's influence, and Bach as well, as I'm sure we'll be finding out. I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of BBC Radio 3's Record Review. Welcome to this podcast edition of Building a Library, in which Brahms expert Katie Hamilton compares recordings of Brahms's E minor cello sonata and a short list of quite different recordings on period and modern instruments. But before we hear any of the music... I asked Katie if she'd give us an idea of where Brahms's first cello sonata fits into not just his own music, but the history of the cello sonata itself. This is a relatively early piece for Brahms. It's his first duo sonata, and he starts writing it when he's 29 years old. So we've had the serenades, the disastrous first piano concerto premiere. He hasn't yet written any really large-scale orchestral music. That all comes a lot later. And they're really the first big cello sonatas after Beethoven, and Clearly, Brahms has got his ear and eye on the Beethoven sonatas in the way that he puts these pieces together. And it means it's been recorded by, well, pretty much every cellist you've heard of who's made recordings over the years, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Name a famous cellist and they've done this. So Jacqueline Dupre recorded these sonatas with Barenboim, Valfish has recorded them, Rostropovich has recorded them. I've got down Leonard Rose, Yo-Yo Ma, Pierre Fournier, Piatigorsky, we could go on. Um, but you've actually listened to a lot of these I've ready li- to make yeah, shortlist, haven't you? About somewhere between 25 and 30 different recordings of this piece just to kind of to, to work out how they approach the piece differently and then to kind of narrow down some of the variety of approaches that we have on offer. So you've whittled these down to a sort of top 10 almost. I have. And it's been a very, very interesting process to see how people have approached this and how big they think these Brahms cello sonatas should be, which is something that we'll come to later on when we look at some of the period instrument recordings, whether this is big, meaty playing or whether this is a a rather finer textured kind of sound. And it's young Brahms as well. It's early Mm. Brahms. I think that's worth remembering. Picture him young, slim, clean-shaven. It all helps, doesn't it? Absolutely. Right, we're going to start at the beginning. We have to because immediately... You start comparing recordings, you realise just how many different ways there are of playing these opening bars. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really hard first movement in terms of pacing and in terms of tempo, because it's marked allegro non troppo. There's no slow movement in this sonata. Some people, therefore, kind of treat the non troppo as an excuse to go really in quite a stately fashion. Well, what do you think he's saying? He's saying allegro, so sort of quick, but not too quick. Not too quick, but I think it's got to have a sense of of movement. And very quickly, as we'll see, we move from really quite hesitant accompaniment for the pianist, chords and rests, chords and rests, into music that feels like it wants to move forward. And it's what different combinations do with that 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 becomes really very interesting.
So that was Stephen Islis and Stephen Huff absolutely masterfully in control, so stylish. And I love the way that Huff plays those piano chords, this wonderful kind of meeting of sound and silence, because the rests are very, very difficult to know how to place. Wonderful singing playing from Isolis, a real sense of forward momentum, which I think goes very nicely with the line, the way the line is written. And I want to contrast that immediately with almost anti-gravity phrasing. So this is a very, very different approach. This is Janosch Starker and Georges Schibuk. And we have a lovely round tone here from the cello, but the way that they pull and push the tempo around is so completely different. It's worth it for comparison. Hungarian duo of Janosz Starker and George Szebuk uh, recording the Brahms in June 1964 for the Mercury Living Presence label. What a difference from Isilis and Huff, Katie, because they, as you said, they were just pulling it around. Everything is phrased, shaped, the rubato is quite extreme. After Huff and Isilis, I was thinking, I don't really like it like this. And then something about it makes it absolutely convincing. Yeah, it is bizarre in that you kind of come round to it and it becomes compelling, but it's such a different shape from any other recording, actually. And one of the things that's so funny about this first movement is that there's a particular point where pretty much every cellist hits the same bar in about the same amount of time. In about I know, a minute I was looking at the seconds. timings. It's about one ten, one twelve, isn't yeah. it? Um, and yet what you've done to get there is so enormously varied from recording to recording, and yet somehow the push-pull always about lands in the same place. Right, we've got our first period instrument performance next. Uh, it's not just the instruments, though, that make this a historically informed performance, is it? There's a lot more than just instrumentarium going on. Yeah, this is a very, very interesting recording, very new this year, from Kate Bennett-Wadsworth and Yiheng Yang. And Kate was involved in making a new edition of the cello sonatas for Baronwriter, which was not just as normal sorting out to make sure that all the notes were in the right order, um, but actually sitting down with all of the, the sources that we have of period instrument performance from during Brahms's lifetime. So all of the sweeping portamento between notes, uh, the pulling around at cadence points, dislocated left and right hand in the piano playing, all of those features of performance practice have gone into the way that this performance is put together, as well as them using historically appropriate instruments. Kate Bennett-Wadsworth and Yi Heng Yang in the recording they made in Massachusetts in America in 2017. 
period instruments, the sound's always going to be different, isn't it? Um, the timbres of that 1875 Streicher and Sun piano. And that was made only a few years after the one that the company gave to Brahms that he apparently used for the rest of his life. So the connection there is colossal um, when it comes to the timbres and the attack and the sustain, all of these things. It changes things. It really does. And it, and it makes you aware as well, what I was saying earlier on about the kind of the potential massiveness of this piece, depending on how cellists and pianists treat it on modern instruments. What this kind of recording gives you is an awareness of how of how delicate a texture it's possible to get from a period instrument and piano and the kind of sound world that Brahms would be used to when he was writing this piece, when he was playing this piece. And as you say, the Streicher piano that's being used as well. Wonderful variety of timbre and colour across the compass of the instrument as well. So, you know, cello sonatas are difficult because you can end up with very muddy uh, tenor sound in the middle of a modern piano. But on a period piano, it's very clear that you've got lovely pingy high notes. You've got a really singing tenor melody in the middle. The bass supports the sound of the cello very nicely. And, and it doesn't thicken like a modern concert grand one, Exactly. And particularly in the outer movements of this sonata, that, that makes a huge difference to the way that we kind of perceive the way that Brahms has written the music. And you heard lots of the other um, period things. You heard those period portamenti, the little slides. And um, those things, they, they do make a difference. How much do they matter, though, when it comes to comparing period instruments and modern recordings because you know i sense that there are lots of reasons why you'd want to listen to this it's very informative but it might not end up in your top two or three it might not end up in your top two or three but i think it makes an enormous difference to have encountered something like this first because it gives you an awareness of you know the, the approach that the composer's gone in with and you know, if you're playing a modern cello and you're playing a modern piano, of course you're not going to be able to, to reproduce that. That's fine. It's like you wouldn't expect somebody to play Bach on a piano like they would play it on a harpsichord. But it, it informs, I think, the way that we listen. And it also informs, when we're listening to modern instrument recordings, how clearly they managed to keep that sense of kind of feathering through the texture that we get, particularly in the last movement when you've got quite dense contrapuntal writing, that pianists need to think about how to manage that given that they are using a heavier instrument than the one Brahms wrote for. Something else that's interesting about this sonata is that uh, Brahms actually dedicated it to an amateur cellist. Do we know about the relationship and how it sounded? Because he, he Brahms played it with this man, didn't he? He did. So it was dedicated to Josef Gensbacher. And Gensbacher was a lawyer, but he was quite a talented musician. He sang, he played the cello, and later on in his career, he gave up the law and actually became a singing professor and Brahms helped him get the job. He, in turn, helped Brahms get hold of several rather important manuscripts of Schubert. And it was the fact that he'd managed to help Brahms acquire the manuscript of Der Wanderer that meant that Brahms decided he would dedicate this sonata to Gainsbacher. But we know that they played it together. It's not an easy play. It's I mean, my goodness, <laughs> this is not friendly music for an amateur, either for the pianist or for the cellist. Rather wonderfully, when they played it together during the performance that they gave to some friends, he said at the end to Brahms that he couldn't hear the cello part over Brahms's piano playing. And Brahms responded, lucky you. <laughs> so quite what we, we are to make of Gainsbacher's ability level, therefore, I'm not quite it's sure. It's hard to know. would it be great to have a recording not the first time we've, we've, we've thought that when we know that um, the composers have performed their own music right we've heard several different approaches to the opening of the E minor sonata we haven't met all our contenders yet though who's next so next we've got uh, Miklos Perenyi and Zoltan Kocic this is a little bit further into the first movement it's quite relaxed to start with lots of very subtle shaping but it builds to real excitement and I like the the sense that this is young man's music there's real energy and drive here
So that was Miklos Perenyi and Zoltan Kocic. Really exciting, passionate playing from both of them. And we're going to move to a very different approach now from Sol Gabetta and Elin Grimo. This recording surprised me because it feels really quite slow, certainly in comparison to some of the recordings that we've already listened to. But although it doesn't have that kind of restless urgency, it really makes you listen in a different kind of way. It's extremely lyrical. There's real gravitas here. Patience is required, but it seriously pays off. Olga Better and Ellen Grimo on their album Duo from 2012, uh, making Katie Hamilton listen differently, which is always a good thing. Uh, more measured and, and, and massive in a way, but you just said it's like an iceberg. You know, there's, there's stuff below the surface, but it, it's, it's not too heavy. It doesn't lumber. No, I think that that's the crucial thing. It doesn't feel like it's stodgy. We don't get stuck, but there's this sense of kind of massive forward momentum yeah and that's so different from pretty much every other recording actually there's nobody else who quite does it like this well, it's interesting because and- we've got another ellen grimo recording with a different cellist mm. waiting in the wings we'll hear that later but again it's a reminder you just wouldn't get that kind of sound that kind of weight those timbres from a period instrument duo I and mean, we've got another one coming up right now we have and this is very different from the period instrument recording that we've already heard because this is period instruments but it's mostly played in a modern style So we've got the clarity of texture that we've had before, but without the dislocations, without the portamenti to the same extent. This is a rather more energetic kind of playing than we've had because they're going with the fact that they've got no additional tonal baggage and they're just going to forge ahead. This is Peter Whisperway and Paul Common. So that was Peter Whispelway and Paul Common, both playing period instruments. We've got a 
mid-1860s Viennese piano there from Josef Riedel. Um, this is one of two recordings, actually, that Peter Whisperways made of this piece, but this is the period instrument recording, and I think this is the most interesting, and my goodness, how different from the Gabetta Grimaud recording that we heard before. It's light, real dig into the climax point. It's got a sense of flight, actually. Mm. Uh, very, very different from the kind of heavy iceberg that we had just minutes before. And from the other period instrument um, performance we heard, there's a sort of greater, yeah. greater sense of freedom about it. You feel as though they're not sort of hidebound by the text, by all the research. Yeah, I think that because they don't feel the need to to look so much to the specific techniques, there's there's more opportunity to take what they want and then, mm. you know, do what they want the rest of the time rather than it being quite so careful in, in every single swoop and placement. But well, the swoops and placements are interesting as well. Of course they are, and they're about to get more interesting, aren't they? Because we've got the same recording in the next excerpt. And uh, is this the most straightforward part of the Brahms? Three movements, this is the middle one. It's basically a minuet and trio, isn't it? It is, and I think this this is the movement This is, I think, the the most ensembles seem to kind of find different but compelling ways of performing. It's the outer movements where the pacing becomes a real headache, actually. Um, This is relatively straightforward. And here we've got brisk, bouncy, lots of speed in this recording and lots of lovely springy trills that we get from the pianist, which is something that you can really do on an 1860s piano. Peter Whispelway and Paul Komen again in the middle movement of Brahms's E minor cello sonata. And that, I have to say that's one of the reasons I like period instrument recordings using pianos like that um, 1860s Viennese uh, Rido instrument. Um, the lightness of the sound and the relative, well, it's not a lack of sustain, but it's different. It just improves the clarity. Absolutely. It's kind of perky, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's bouncy and perky. And, it, and when he does pedal, when we've got those kind of longer textures in the left hand, you can give lovely warm sustain, but it never gets kind of claggy and too much. But having said that, you can also do Brahmsian wit on a modern concert grand. You absolutely can. And whilst I love the Whisperway Come On recording, it, it's they're quite serious about it. And I think there's a bit of humour to be had in this movement. So, so have a listen to this as somebody who's perhaps got a little bit more of that wit.
Well, that's pianist Ellen Grimo's other recording of the Brahms E minor sonata with cellist Truls Merck from uh, Grimo's album Reflection in 2005. And it's deliciously pointed, isn't it? it, It's very, very light on its feet. It's balletic. It is. And it's jaunty as well. I I like the sense of humour that they bring to this. And I think there's points later on, because, of course, the structure of this movement means we keep getting that melody, where there's a real sort of almost Hungarian swagger to the way that they deliver it, which is very charming. And this is not a sonata that necessarily lends itself to there being moments of charm, except in the second movement. So I think you've got to grab it whilst it's there. And how does this compare to Grimo's other one, which you already heard with Songabetta? I think... This movement is is the most compelling of of the Trollsmuck recording. The, the other two are are lovely, but they are less, perhaps less extreme in the way that they play with tempo. And I think the Saga Better recording, just because it makes such drastic decisions about the sorts of pacing that we're going to have, is a more compelling listen overall. But I do think that the Merck Grimo second movement is really something to be sort of savoured. Right, tuck that behind your ear because it's a it's an interesting one. Um, who have you picked for us to hear uh, the first trio? So this is Perenyi and Kocic again. And actually, whilst the outer movements of their recording I, I adore, I'm not quite as compelled by this second movement. It's very, very steady and perhaps a little bit flabby in places. But the trio is beautiful and you can absolutely hear Brahms's A1 model in this trio, which is, of course, Chopin. That was Miklos Perenyi and Zoltan Kocish playing the trio of this second movement. And it's just, it is beautiful once they get going. This wonderful kind of rich, romantic Chopin sound. The trio itself is rather slower and steadier than the ones that we've heard before. But overall, I think it does still persuade as a movement. And we're going to hear a little bit more of the trio, but pushing on a bit more this time. This is Solgabetta and Erling Klimo, so the other recording with Erling Klimo. Um, and this time we've got the link back into the trio section at the end is a very, very light, very stylish return, plus some lovely romantic playing, more Chopin.
Sol Gabetta and Ellen Grimo in Brahms's trio. Powerful modern sound still, Katie, but lightness as well. It's not thick, heavy Brahms, is it? No, it's never too much. And they, they work so beautifully as a duo when they've both got that melody in the centre. It would be very easy for one to overpower the other. And the and balance yet, is really good, isn't it? And not just, you know, between the pair of them obviously being sensitive to one, to one another, but also the recorded sound, it's very good. Yeah, it's a very, very classy, high-quality recording, this one. And and we heard the, the uh, reappearance of the opening material at the end there. Again, lovely, light, very, very charmingly played. We haven't heard from the Stevens for a few minutes, have we? Stephen Isselis and Stephen Huff, are they still in the running? They are most definitely still in the running, and I think we should listen to this one last trio, which is just dreamy in all senses. Isilis and Huff in the trio of the Brahms E minor sonata. And Stephen Isilis writes in his notes, they're very good notes, they often are with him, aren't they, for the recording. That for him, this is almost a historical sonata, he says, its roots firmly planted in the music of the past, as if Brahms was turning his back on his wild young self. And <laughs> it's strange, isn't it, because you said almost the opposite um, at the beginning. And we've heard performances which go in both directions already. Absolutely. And because of when Brahms writes this piece, you know, he, he starts it in 1862. He's trying to settle down in Vienna. He's not really established as a composer yet. He's doing a huge amount of concertizing. So he's a young, muscular, virtuoso pianist who's out touring. He's also trying to establish himself as a grown up. So, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about this piece is that because it's written in bits and there was a fourth movement, which was subsequently dropped and we don't really know what happened to it. It's possible it ended up in the second sonata, but we can't be sure. Sure. Yeah. It's an unstable and kind of question mark work for Brahms. And, and that's one of the joys of the recordings is that you can take it in so many different directions, depending on the picture you have in your head of what he's trying to be when he writes it. We also know from the symphonies, if nowhere else, that he in some ways was very self-conscious of Beethoven. And um, Islis does make the point in the notes that uh, Beethoven's A major cello sonata is um, all over the minuet of the Brahms, isn't it? Absolutely. There's several Beethoven cello sonatas that are kind of heavily referenced in this piece. There's also a lot of Bach. And we're going to get to it, aren't we? Because we've reached the third movement, the finale of the Brahms. How does Bach come into it and why? Well, I mean, Brahms had been interested in Bach really since the early 1850s, since he met Robert Schumann, who was a founder of the Bach New Edition and the Bach Society. So he knew Bach's music extremely well. And when he puts together this movement of the um, sonata, he bases one of the main themes in the movement on one of the contrapunctus from the Art of Fugue. So, in fact, there's two different contrapuncti that turn up, one that influences the first movement of this piece and one that is almost quoted in the finale. And as we'll hear when it starts, it's fugal writing. And that's one of the reasons why it's it's a real challenge for cellist and pianist to work together, because you want to hear all the entries. You need that clarity, but it's low in the instrument. So you've got to find a way to give that sense of each individual line coming in one after the other. And so we're going to start with a period instrument recording where they've got the additional advantage of lighter texture. This is Peter Whisperway and Paul Common. Thank you. 
really exciting and clear playing there from Peter Whisperway and Paul Common. And we're going to move on now to similar clarity, but from modern instruments. So this is Solgabetta and Hélène Grimaud. Lyrical playing, it does, alas, in the centre of this movement, we do get a little bit muddy with the additional pedalling. But at the beginning here, absolute clarity of texture. And it just goes to show that you don't necessarily need to be playing period instruments to really make this work. Is, well, as we were both just saying, that is really classy playing, isn't it? It's got that forward momentum. It's got the clarity that we also heard from Whisperway and Coleman on period instruments. And, uh, well, there wasn't too much blurry pedalling there, was there? No, no. It, it, it's just it's just a tiny bit just occasionally, but it's the lyrical playing is so beautiful as well. It's very, very compelling playing from both of them. Well, that's Solga Better and Ellen Grimo on Deutsche Grammophon. Uh, we're going back to Stephen Isles and Stephen Huff now. Do they blur the counterpoint? I bet they don't. There is not a blur in sight. This is absolutely beautiful, completely meticulous. Everything is bang in place. Although I think they are using a different edition from everybody else because I don't think it comes in the excerpt we're going to hear, but there's a passage a bit later on where there are some notes in the piano part, one or two accidentals, which are consistently applied but are not in any of the editions that I've seen. So maybe they're using a, a, an early... It doesn't say anything about them in the notes Nothing either, does in the it? Notes, so, you know, no. we just have to guess. And they really are, you know, blink and you'll miss it. But just a couple of tiny notes in some of the piano writing that, that don't tally with, with others. But on the I'm, other hand. On the other hand, the playing is fantastic. And it really is. I mean, meticulous is the word, which I think makes it a wonderful recording. It just somehow for me, I like this a little bit rougher. This music, I think because I, I favour the kind of the young wild Brahms approach. I mean, I'm not for a moment to criticise this because it is a fantastic disc. But for me, I, I like mine with it with a slightly higher adrenaline shot level. Thank you. 
That was Stephen Isselis and Stephen Huff. Uh, Using a slightly different edition from everybody else, there's a couple of notes in there that you won't find in other recordings, and they don't sound wrong. They're just different. I'd love to know what edition they're using. We're going to move on now to a slightly different approach to this last movement. The Isselis Huff recording is beautiful. It's never rough and it's never desperate. And for me, it's the adrenaline that makes this movement. So we're going to hear Miklos Pereni and Zoltan Kocic this time. This is really exciting. I defy you not to be on the edge of your seat in this. This recording is almost a minute shorter than your average recording of this finale. And it's very, very energetic, but it is also quite careful and graceful. So you've got two players completely in control and yet the adrenaline is absolutely there. Miklos Pereni and Zoltan Kocic, and they just take off right from the start of the movement, don't they? And and then keep it driving forward. And yet, when they need time to point a phrase, they take it. Yeah, I think this is the kind of the golden key to Brahms playing, is that it's somehow keeping your eyes on the prize so that you've got a sense of the overall shape of the movement. And theirs is absolutely one of forward-driven motion. And yet having enough time to sort of stop and smell occasional roses on the way past. So it's the kind of the small scale and the big scale planning and how they interact. Okay, so this is obviously... One of your favourite, if not your favourite, finales. But sum up for us, eight duos made it to your final shortlist. Uh, who's left on the table now the end's inside? And are, you, are you separating the period instrument ones um, or do we consider them all as um, performances in their own right? I think we consider them all as performances in their own right. I think it's it's unhelpful to, to separate them. I would say that perhaps the Kate Bennett Wadsworth recording, just because of how unused we are to hearing the performance practice techniques as well as the instruments it doesn't need considering as a sort of ghetto on its own but it's a very very different listening experience because it's a style of playing we're just not used to hearing well, anymore. it's a learning experience i've really found it that way and the notes yeah. are really interesting as well so it's a great way of finding out a huge amount of context for the sonata itself. Absolutely. And I think we're going to see a lot more recordings. I hope we're going to see a lot more recordings of that kind that bother to take such care to give us a different listening experience. And also, as you say, very, very useful explanatory notes that talk about mm. the instrument and also about the process of putting that recording together. We also heard Janosch Starker and George Shebok. Um, that recording's over half a century old now. Does that put it into a separate category for you? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think the... 
that's a recording where there are some wonderful moments and we heard one of the real highlights from it. It's a shame that the balance means that often the piano vanishes. And I think... It's an unusual problem to have with this piece, isn't uh, it? <laughs> it re- well, it really is. But I think, you know, what, what's clear from some of the other recordings that we've heard and from Whisperway Common, for example, is how important it is that these two are absolutely equal players. Just because of the amount of counterpoint that's written into this score, you've got to have that clarity and balance between the two musicians. OK, so have you got a top three? Yeah, I, I have got a top three, and this was this was really difficult. I think it depends on what you want from this sonata, and as we've already said, this is a piece that comes at a point in Brahms's life where it could go lots of different ways. Isolis and Huff, absolutely beautiful playing. It's totally meticulous. It never feels risky, and I quite like risk. Then we've got Perenni and Kochish. We just heard absolute adrenaline rush of the last movement. The second movement is a slight letdown just because of how slow, actually, the, the opening section of it is. But the trio is very beautiful. And then Salgabetta and Elin Grimo would have to be the third in the top three. Overall, it's very slow, but it blossoms and it works. And as I said earlier on, you know, it, it made me listen to this piece in a very different kind of way, as well as the fact that, that it retains that clarity of tone and texture that's so important in this piece. OK, so what is it that's going to get your overall building a library recommendation over the line? Well, I've got to say, I'm, I'm a sucker for the adrenaline rush. And I think, you know, I see this as, as absolutely as young man's music. So for me, it's got to be Perenni and Kochish that take the top spot. So I thought to finish with, we just have to hear how they reach the finish line at the end of this finale. Katie Hamilton, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The end of the E minor cello sonata number one by Johannes Brahms and a performance with the extra adrenaline rush that reviewer Katie Hamilton wants in her Brahms. And that, in the final analysis, gives it the edge over her other favourites. So Katie's overall building a library recommendation is the Hungarian duo of Miklos Perenyi and Zoltan Kocsis. And you'll find their recording of both Brahms cello sonatas on the Hungariton label. Details of that recording, as well as Katie's runners-up, are on the Record Review website. You've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library from BBC Sounds. Next time, pianist Lucy Parham joins me to compare recordings of a work she knows intimately, the Piano Concerto by Robert Schumann. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, on FM Online and on BBC Sounds, where you can discover more music, radio and podcasts like this one. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio3.